praying for our love mic over the last two months. Uh, works every time at 10 o'clock. Um, and so he told me I'm not allowed to bail until I give him a chance to fix it. So he's working on it back there right now. Um, we are so thankful uh, for an opportunity to gather as a church. Uh, if I br- break down in tears at any point in the sermon, just give me some grace. Uh, it is just the biggest privilege in the world to watch your kids come to know the Lord. Uh, nothing fills my heart with more joy uh, and my wife's heart with more joy. Um, if you are a visitor here today, uh, you should see a visitor card in one of the seat backs in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to fill that out. It gives us a chance to reach out to you, uh, share a little bit about the church, invite you to coffee uh, or lunch uh, with one of the pastors. And then if you're interested, get more connected in relationally uh, to what's going on here at Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. Uh, it is time to hear the Word of God this morning. Um, you should see on the screen... Um, uh-oh. Looks like I had a pin bust somewhere on me. Uh, it's not good. Uh, it's a good thing we got black pants on today. Um, all right, here we go. Um, Mark 6. Uh, okay, you got your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, um, it's going to pop up on the screen uh, behind me. If you want a Bible, there's always Bibles downstairs. Please take those. If we go broke buying Bibles for people, what a great way to go broke. So take as many as you want. Take one for a neighbor if they need a Bible. But this is Mark Six. Um, we're going to look at verses 30 through 44. I'm going to pray and then I'll dive into this sermon. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the word of God. We're so grateful for the scripture that you've given us to remind us of truth to remind us of your power, to remind us of who you are, to remind us of your love. You're so grateful that we get to pass this truth along to the kids that are a part of Redeemer. And they get to pass it back to us. Father, we pray that your word 
would be used today to mold and shape us into people that look more and more like Jesus. May you convict us of sin where we need to be convicted. May you remind us of truth where we've forgotten it. And may we be pushed forward on mission. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. i got two goals today. One is to preach the Word of God faithfully to you, and the other is to not touch my face with this hand. So we will tell which of those goals, and hopefully both of them will be accomplished. But the feeding of the 5,000. So this passage, this story is not new to very many of you. Uh, It's probably a passage you've heard before, and you kind of already know the lesson, or you think you do. We think we do. The lesson that Jesus is able to do, miraculous, thank you, what's a friend, able to do miraculous things even when we don't understand how he's going to do it. We look at a passage like this and say, wow, even, with this, even despite not having the means, he's able to provide for people. And I pray that you would see that there is a, not only this lesson, but a whole lot more. This is not just an intellectual exercise on a Sunday morning, but I want you to feel what these disciples felt. Jesus sees this large crowd, has compassion on them, starts teaching them. And then the disciples who are, in my opinion, wired a lot like me and are very reasonable in what they say here. You can't fault them at all. They come to Jesus and and say, bro, you've got to wrap this teaching up. The people need to get to their villages. The, the, The towns are shutting down. The restaurants, the stores are closing and they're going to be hungry. This is the nice thing to do to send them out. Jesus looks at them and says, why don't you give them something to eat? And the disciples respond, that would take half a year's wages. To put it in today's terms, that is $40,000-$50,000 worth of money that would be spent to give in order to feed all of these people. And so you picture yourself in that conversation. You're at looking out at 5,000 men, which is probably over 10,000 people in total. And if you're anything like me, you would look out at those people. Jesus says, go feed them, and you'd have an enormous not in your stomach. This is not going to work. This doesn't make any sense. I'm going to look like a fool if I do this. Simple as that, then. Jesus tells them, what do you have? And what do they have? they got five loaves and two fish. And I don't know when the light bulb went off for the rest of the disciples, but knowing the stories, I bet even after they brought back the five loaves and two fish, they are still thinking, we don't have enough to care for all of these people. But as you know, they absolutely did. They had enough to feed thousands of people, even enough to have food left over. So what happened here wasn't simply a miracle for us to be in awe of Jesus' power. Yes, that is a good thing to be in awe of. It's what happened here was Jesus teaching the disciples and us today a lesson that God has been trying to teach his people since the beginning of creation. The big idea we're going to look at today is that we do not serve a God of scarcity, but we serve a God of abundance. Can I get an amen for that? We do not serve a God of scarcity. We serve a God of abundance. 
Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, more he's accurately described as a missiologist, someone who studies church mission, which we talked a little bit about last week, is a voice that has opened my eyes to a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. So I want to honor him and give credit where credit is due. But this idea of abundance feeding thousands versus scarcity, the fear that we do not have enough, the scripture begins with this exact story. Genesis 1 is a song of praise of God's generosity. It goes on and on about creation. It says it is good. Again, it is good. It is good. And at the end it says it is very good. Genesis 1, the opening of Scripture, tells us that God blesses, that is, He endows with life the plants, the animals, the fish, the birds, and humankind. It pictures the Creator as saying, be fruitful and multiply in a straight-up party of fruitfulness. There is fruitfulness left and right in the garden. Everything in its kind is there to multiply to the overflowing love and kindness of the Lord. And as you know, the creation ends in Sabbath, that seventh day of creation. God literally looks up and is just like, I've got to take a break out of this. I'm going to go ahead and put a, you know out-of-office sign on the front door. It's clear that God, in that story, is a God not of scarcity, but a God of abundance. A God of provision. Every need and desire is met to the point to where he says you can even rest on the last day. But what happens with man, literally every need is met. But Adam and Eve look at each other and say, what if I can have more? Sin enters the world because of a simple mistake. Disobedience put plainly a lack of trust that God provided enough for them. And we're going to see this throughout the Old Testament. As time went on, Israel, the people of God, celebrate God's abundance over and over again. And that abundance looking back on creation. Psalm 104, the longest creation psalm, is is put simply a commentary on Genesis 1. The psalmist surveys creation and names it all. The heavens and the earth, the waters, the springs and the streams, trees and birds, goats, wine and oil. Verses 27 and 28 are something like a prayer where it says, you give them all food in due season, you feed everybody. Or in the South we'd say, E-R-R-R, body. Psalm 150, the last psalm in the book, is an exuberant expression of amazement and praise of the God that provided for the people. Together, these scriptures proclaim that God's force of life is loose in the world, that abundant love. Psalm 150 ends the Psalms by enacts abandoning oneself to God and letting go of the need to have everything under control. And so we saw that story in creation. Then we keep fast forward a little bit to Abraham and Sarah, the family of God. God tells them to be a blessing and then to do what? To bless the nations. See, blessing is an act of caring for the people. It's a response to being cared for. We go care for others. In faith, the trust is the awareness of that blessing. That awareness, that humility of seeing God provide dominates Genesis all up until chapter 47. 
Chapter 47, it's okay if you don't know this. So I was about to ask anybody, does anybody know what chapter 47 means? And if you said yes, you'd get you know, a bonus point there. But then I'd feel bad because you're being legalistic and kind of raising your hand about it. So I'm not going to ask at all. But in that chapter, if you don't already know it, or if you do know and you're being quiet about it, Pharaoh, the ruler of the day, introduces the concept of scarcity to the people. Pharaoh, not a follower of God, dreams that there will be a famine in the land. A famine that destroys crops, that causes pain to people. And Pharaoh, what does he do? Instead of recognizing that there is an abundant God out there, Pharaoh gets scared. Pharaoh gets organized and starts to administer, control, kind of monopolize the food supply. He introduces the principle of scarcity into the world economy. For the first time in the Bible, someone looks up and says, there's not enough for everyone, therefore let's get everything for ourselves. This guy named Martin Niemöller, a German pastor, a guy that a whole sermon series could be written on this guy, is a German pastor who heroically opposed Adolf Hitler. This guy was a young man when as a part of the delegation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, he met with Hitler in 1933, kind of before it all went terrible, leading up to World War II, Niemöller stood at the back of the room and he looked and listened as Hitler spoke. He didn't say anything, but he went home. His wife asked him what he had learned that day. And Niemöller replied, I discovered that Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Because Pharaoh, like Hitler after him, is afraid that there aren't enough good things to go around. And amidst all sorts of a myriad of other problems, he must try to have them all, not because he's loving, but because he's fearful. He is ruthless. And good gosh, this principle of believing a God of abundance or being scared that there's not enough, though you will not prayerfully commit the atrocities that a man like Hitler committed that, Struggle is in every single one of us. When we are scared, God will not provide. Brothers and sisters, we act less and less like the Christians God has called us to be. So what happens with Pharaoh? He hires Joseph to manage the land. That monopoly he has set up. But when the crops are awful and the peasants, the people are out of food... They come to Joseph, and Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph says, what's your collateral? So they give up their land for food that year. The next year, they give up their cattle. By the year of the third year of the famine, they have no collateral left. So what do they give up? They give up their selves. That's how the children of Israel became slaves, through an economic transaction. The notion of scarcity has been introduced to the biblical faith. The book of Exodus records this bout between the generosity of God and the life-sucking myth of scarcity, and that bout still tears us apart individually and communally today. So we certainly see how the fear of scarcity can ruin people like Pharaoh, but what about us? What about the people of God? Well, in that same book of Exodus, and I know we're heavy in the Old Testament here, but that same book of Exodus and also in Numbers 21 is one of my favorite stories of God. The people of God are wandering in the desert 
And in a miraculous way, they are provided for nutritionally by God. In answer to the people's fears and complaints, even when they are being disobedient, which is a good word for us, something extraordinary happens. God's love, His provision, comes trickling down in the form of bread. They say, manna? The Hebrew word for what is it? My Atlanta OG people remember what is it was actually the 1996 Olympic mascot. Uh, What is it? Uh, Nobody knew what to call it, so they just called it what is it. Then they referred to it as Izzy. We all thought it was the dumbest thing on earth. And a month later, we all loved it. And it's still very nostalgic for us. So please do not criticize it uh, for those of us who grew up in Atlanta. That has nothing to do with this. Because that has no provision. But we think about this and we see the people of God... They had never before received bread as a free gift that they couldn't control, predict, or plan for their own. You see, this story of the people of God being hungry and God miraculously bringing manna down, the meaning of this strange narrative is that the gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. That manna was a wonder, wonder, a miracle. It's an embarrassment almost. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. But this is the story, again, of God's abundance entering into our misunderstanding of how the economy works. There's three things that happen to this bread in Exodus 16. First and foremost, everybody had enough. People of God are wandering in the desert with no food in sight. And what do they do? They wake up and there's food waiting for them. And everybody eats. But because Israel had learned to believe in scarcity back in Egypt, people started to hoard the bread. I mean, the ridiculousness of this is just absurd. But then I look at my own life and I'm like, yep, that might have been me too. When they tried to bank it, invest it, and set it aside for tomorrow, what happened to that bread? It turned sour. And it rotted. Because you can't store up God's generosity. You enjoy it and you share it with others. Finally, Moses says, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do what God did in Genesis 1. We ought to have a Sabbath. What Sabbath means, that rest means there's enough bread for everybody. We don't have to hustle every day of our lives. There's no record that Pharaoh, in contrast, ever took a day off. Because people who think that their lives consistently struggle of getting more and more and more and more can never slow down because they ain't never going to have enough. And if we view life through that lens of scarcity like Pharaoh did, we will always be fearful and anxious. So how do we live the life that Jesus promises, that he calls us to? We trust that God, the God of abundance will always take care of us. He will always give us enough. We can trust Him by, to keep providing so we can rest and we're called to share it with others. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of Mark 6. But the struggle still continued into the New Testament. I mean, until Jesus comes back, this struggle is going to be difficult for us to believe these three things. And when the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, that manna stopped coming, not because God wasn't faithful, because now they can and will be able to grow their own food 
in the Old Testament time. But very soon, Israel, the people of God, suffer a great defeat in battle. And Joshua, one of the leaders of the day, conducts an investigation to figure out what went wrong, what undermined that mission. And you know what he found out? He traced the defeat back to a man named Achan, which is not related to the rapper, A-apostrophe-C-H-A-N. And that man stole some of the spoils of battle and withheld it from the community of God. And there was a direct correlation between that defeat and that man who stopped believing that God would abundantly supply. So why was this story included? I think it was to remind us that the battle to trust is always present. And this goes on to the New Testament Think about the early church, Acts 4. All the believers are together in one heart and one mind. No one claimed their possessions of their own, which I'm not saying that, you know, directly applies to us today, but the principle should. They shared everything that they had. There were no needy persons among them. This is from the end of Acts 4. For from the time, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a beautiful picture of trusting in the abundance of God and not believing the lie that there's not enough for everybody and the lie of scarcity that leads to fear but what happened in the very next chapter there were these two there's this couple, a guy named Ananias and Sapphira and it says they also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles feet and Peter said, how is it Ananias, that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept this money for yourself that you received for the land. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to us, but to God. And I promise you this is in the Bible. The next verse, Ananias heard this, and he fell down and died. Three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, his wife said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband at the door, they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. I don't share this story, I don't share any of this story as a way to guilt you into giving more money to the church. Uh, So don't hear that. This is not a like, we're not going to like take the tithe basket and just keep shaking it until there's enough money in there after this is over. I tell you these stories so that you can see the greater narrative that is throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I tell you these stories from my own heart as well, not to sit here and help you say, to condemn you into giving more, not to just condemn you into being more generous with your time, with your talents, with your money, with who you are and what you do with your life. I tell you these stories because life is so much better when we trust that God. I tell you these stories because the Bible wants us to see. He wants Jesus, Jesus wants those disciples to see in Mark 6 that following him means that we can trust him and in turn have the most joy-filled generous community of people on this entire planet. We think about that story in Mark 6. Imagine 
the, the joy that swelled up in those disciples' hearts as they are just handing out you know, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of bread and fish to needy people that are sitting there hungry for food, knowing they didn't provide that. It was, it was given to them just like everything you have has been given to you. But they looked at that and said, this is not mine to eat and hoard because they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. They said, I trust that Jesus, because he's done this before, he's going to do it again. Therefore, I can give it away to the people that need it. Jesus says, put the resources in my hand, bring me that bread and fish and see what I can do with it. That's the invitation we have today. Scarcity becomes abundance. Fear becomes trust. And this is the difference between the two. You can put up that, that slide with a chart in it. Is that on the left, abundance means trusting God's provision and leads to peace. It leads to joy. It leads to generosity. It leads to mission. Scarcity, when we're terrified that we're not going to have enough tomorrow, leads to being fearful, anxious, control-driven, selfish, and looking in the mirror instead of at our neighbor. And this doesn't mean that we aren't wise. Like, have an emergency fund. Like, if your car breaks down, like, have some money in the bank to pay for that. If you have margins with your time, like, don't run yourself ragged. Rest is a beautiful and good thing. But examine your heart. Examine our hearts. Are we living out of of trusting an abundant God are we scared he's not going to provide for us? When we release our anxiety about never having enough, when we, re- when we release that to God, we are free from that love of money. We're free from that love of the good life. We're free to be overwhelmingly generous and to give up that rat race of keeping up with what the world says to keep up with. And we're free to truly trust and follow Jesus. Isaiah 58, a passage that a lot of our ministry was built upon, it says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Once you decide, instead, once you let the reality sink in, that God is enough for you, you'll truly be able to live out these passages of Scripture. But if you're chasing every last dollar, every last experience, every last affirmation of man, I promise you, your eyes will never be open to be able to share your food, provide the wanderer with shelter, loosen the chains of injustice, clothe the naked, and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And it isn't just with our money. When we trust God with our lives, we are free to be exactly who we are called to be. This means we don't have to continually be searching for the perfect calling. So many of us, especially at a young age, are sitting there saying, oh, if I only have this perfect job or this perfect mission, this perfect calling, but instead just go feel the freedom to find a job, love your neighbors, love the people that you're around. Care for the needy and be a neighbor and a friend. This means that we don't have to continue. We trust that God has provided. We don't have to continue to be searching for the perfect look. But instead, we can trust that God has made us, yes, be healthy. 
but he's made us who we are, and we can let go of that self-seeking, controlled desire to look heavy, to control how we look and get on with loving people and pursuing mission. This idea of abundance versus scarcity will impact almost every aspect of our lives. And the feeding of the multitudes of the 5,000 plus recorded in John's Gospel is a window into the world to come of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And when these disciples charged with feeding the hungry, what did they do? They found that kid with five loaves and two fish. And what did Jesus do? He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. These four decisive verbs are the verbs that lead us in to communion every single Sunday. Jesus took, Jesus blessed, Jesus broke, and he gave. He demonstrated 2,000 years ago that the world is filled with abundance and, and we can, therefore we can be generous people because he's been generous to us. And, there, and then how do we get the strength to do so? We come back to him and remember that he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. So in a few moments as we take communion, may communion this Sunday and every Sunday be a reminder that we never run out. Every Sunday you show up and you don't like you don't know what's under there, but I, you've never we've never looked at them. You've been like, well, I wonder if they're going to have communion today. Like, I wonder if they're going to run out. There's you know lots of people here today. What if we run out of communion? Never will we run out because God's grace never runs out on us. Let's pray, Father. We are so grateful for your kindness, for your generosity, and Father, move us away from a place of scarcity, a place of fear, into a place of trusting you and being generous with our time and with our money. Make us more and more like Christ. Amen.